See you next time. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Have a good one. Um, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? Uh, I don't know. I feel like my subject's going to be boring, so maybe well, we'll start with your subject and then that way when they tune out, they'll already be list- it'll be on my subject. <laughs> well, we're going to do them in two separate episodes. Oh, it's two episodes? Okay. Yeah. Well, okay, I'll talk about mine then. Um, I want to talk about the history of psychological treatment. Ooh. Yeah, partly because I am taking an abnormal psychology class, and the the things that I'm learning are just totally fascinating and absolutely terrible. <laughs> just, it's no wonder... People have been so silent and secretive about what's going on in their heads for so long because the course of this up until, I mean, it started as basically torture and then everyone believed that these abnormal behaviors were controlled by demons (laughs) And yeah, you're talking about like in the Middle Ages. Or? I'm talking way back, like at the as far back as we can go, and then we'll move our way up to modern ages. But it, over the course of like a thousand years is how long it took to get to where we are now, where <laughs> we're just now starting to say, "I'm not feeling great today." When someone asks us if we're okay, like yeah, it stopped being considered like a taboo or just considered something un otherworldly like being possessed by a demon yeah it's it's no wonder we're still being so secretive about it from what i understand in medicine in general like really we're only talking about like a 50 year period where things have gotten to where like you're starting to see some kind of progress yeah, not, I mean, not even, I feel like just within the last couple of years have I been allowed to say that I have depression. So. That could be a coming of age type thing too, because I am older now and, but then again, I think teenagers talk about it too. I think you, you see different types of depression throughout your, throughout your life. I don't think that the depression I'm feeling like as an adult, I don't think it's quite the same as when I was a teenager or when I was younger. Yeah. But, uh, I'm sure that's, that can vary from person to person as well. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start it with a quote because there was a quote in my textbook that I thought was really cool. It's by Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, a classic. (laughs) And the quote goes, I became insane with long intervals of horrible sanity. I became insane with long intervals of horrible sanity. <laughs> <laughs> um, so starting at like ancient times, I don't have a date for this, but um, historians examined bones and artwork of other remnants and other remnants of ancient societies and concluded that they probably regarded abnormal behavior as the work of evil spirits. So that's where we begin our story. And I just imagine what that would be like living in a society 
where you thought that evil spirits existed. Like that was the norm and that they could get inside of you and fuck you up. It just baffles me. The world must have been a very frightening place. Constant fear. Um, people believed uh, events around them and within them resulted from magical, sometimes sinister beings who controlled the world. The human body was a battleground, basically, between forces of good and evil. Wow. <laughs> uh, got Star Wars going on in, the, yeah. in your body. It was just this constant fight between the two. They were um, trying to get a hold of you at any point. How traumatizing. I guess that's why there's so many beliefs in things like uh, chakra and like body energy and oh i totally believe in that stuff though like power stones and stuff like that but i'm sure that all stems from like the battle of good and evil yeah i mean i mean all of these things have some root you know it's like people that say that um coincidences are god's way of staying anonymous (laughs) i mean there's some truth in it in it because it's like, well, cancer cells, those are essentially like evil, bad cells yeah. taking over your body. So Yeah, totally. It's not completely baseless. Yeah, just because there's, you know, scientific uh, evidence to draw from to, to say why and how and what doesn't mean that it's not evil. Because it is. Um, so abnormal behavior basically was the victory of evil spirits. And they had to be cast out somehow. So, oh, now we're getting to the good stuff. Oh, just creeps me out. Um, they found skulls with two holes in them, which was called trifonation. And uh, so basically they had drilled these two holes into people's skulls to release the evil spirits. This was half a million years ago. Uh, so <sighs> trifonation... <laughs> was a stone instrument or trifene was used to cut away a circular section of the skull. Um, So this was for treatment of hallucinations or melancholia, which was extreme sadness and immobility. So basically I would be fucked if I lived then. Mm -hmm. I'd have holes in my head. Um, And then some time passed and then exorcisms came to be ah yes good old exorcism (laughs) the possession of demons um so they would try to coax the evil spirits to leave by making the person's body an uncomfortable place to live so a shaman or priest might recite prayers um they would make loud noises uh, plead with the evil spirits, insult the spirits, perform magic, <laughs> make loud. Oh, I already said that. How uh, have the person drink bitter potions, and uh, and then if these failed, they would get more extreme by whipping or starving the person. At least they didn't start there, I guess. Yeah, they they would move it up a notch depending on how re- responsive the spirit was. I guess. Yeah, they weren't complete completely insane where they're just like get it out and they just abuse the person against their will how did they insult the spirit what would an insult in like ancient times be like your parents were surely orphans 
your family line is not prestigious. And then, yeah, mom would be sitting off to the side just clutching her chest like, oh, how dare you? <laughs> um, okay, and then we move into Egyptian, Chinese, Hebrew, South American, and Europe. Kind of like the Stone Age. Ooh, so this is when things start to get a little more scientific. 500 BC to 500 AD, Greek and Roman era. era. Whoa. Era. So I think, yeah, so what I just talked about was actually a Stone Age. Now we're moving into Greek and Roman era. <laughs> um, Hippocrates, 560 to 377 BC. So time moves backwards up until Christ, right? And then <laughs> it was like negative... Is that how it works? Because this is 560 to 377. That's backwards. yeah. It counts down up until the years, uh, the year one. I don't think <laughs> there wasn't. There's was no year zero, and then oh. it starts going up from there, from when Jesus was born. So Hippocrates was the. F- is that how you say it, Hippocrates? Hippo- I know it's the Hippocratic oath. Yeah. Hippo. Hippocrat. Call him Hippocrates. If you know how to pronounce it, leave us a voicemail. <laughs> Play it on the podcast. Um, he was the father of the of modern medicine, which is kind of concerning because this is a very long time ago. So modern medicine still has roots in what this guy was doing. But he did teach that illnesses had natural causes, which... Um, let us into revolutionary yeah this led us into the the four fluids or humors which um were yellow bile black bile blood and phlegm and if you had an excess of yellow bile you had mania if you had an excess of black bile it was melancholia or what is now known as depression and then um I didn't find with the blood and phlegm, but they did do bloodletting. Okay, so the solution to melancholia was, it started out really good. It was reduced by a quiet life, diet of vegetables, temperance, exercise, celibacy, and bleeding. (laughs) Ah, yes, good old bleeding. (laughs) So so he had something going. I mean, he he was saying, eat, eat well eat healthy, exercise, that'll reduce it. But I don't think abstaining from sex would necessarily help. Maybe in some situations, sex with someone that is an asshole, maybe. Yeah, that was really a, from what I understand, that was like an ongoing theme throughout the ancient world. I know when, um, when Genghis Khan was like getting at the height of his power, when he conquered like almost all of Asia, Mm -hmm. he wanted to figure out how to be immortal and so they looked all around the empire and they found this one dude who was <laughs> supposed to be really, he was considered to be really wise and uh, he really advanced in science. And he, you know, he brought him and he personally sat down with him and Geng- Genghis Khan wanted to know how to become immortal. And he said, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I don't have any, I don't have any solutions for you to be uh, immortal. The only, the best advice I can give you for longevity is sexual abstinence. <laughs> And it's like, if anyone knows anything about Genghis Khan, he totally did not abide by that. Oh, we should do the history of Genghis Khan sometime. That's an interesting story, actually. Um, so during this time, people still believed in demons. 
and that kind of retook a hold of everyone uh, after the decline of Rome. There was a growing distrust of science. And then we moved into the Middle Ages, which were between 500 B, uh, AD and 1350 AD. The clergy became really powerful, and the church rejected scientific forms of investigation. Religious beliefs were highly superstitious. And another thing that we've brought from these, <clears throat> the era... The Middle Ages, I think, fucked us up in a lot of ways, and we've just kind of carried that along with us until now, which is that religion is this very bad thing. <laughs> so I think we're also kind of moving out of that. We're moving into more um, where it's not uh, so black and white. Like, you can be spiritual, and uh, it won't um, mean that you have to be a psychopath. <laughs> it... <laughs> Like, the difference between joining a cult and being certain of an energy that maybe gives you gratitude and makes you feel love or makes you feel like you um, have hope. <clears throat> yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, it's, I've, here in Quebec we have kind of a specific um, relationship with, like, secularism or getting rid of like religious symbols and stuff like that. And uh, you'll have people that get really hysteric about like, they really want to get rid of like crosses and like any signs of like the old Catholic churches. You're like, we have to get rid of every trace has to be removed <laughs> of this cancer. Mm. I'm just like, Whoa. It's just, yeah. I, you know, I went from celebrating Christmas to this. <laughs> Um, I'm starting to sound like Bill O'Reilly. The war on Christmas. <laughs> so during this time, abnormal behavior was proof of Satan's influence. Still. What was that movie with Christian Slater where he, he's like a monk and he has a weird haircut? Uh, can I search on Google? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe type in Christian Slater and weird haircut. Okay, it was the name of the rose. I didn't know that he was in that. Okay. So that's what I imagine this time was like, that movie. Yes. That was a good book, by the way. Oh, was it? Yep. Oh. The film, uh, well, the film, it had some funny moments in it, but uh, it wasn't very loyal. It wasn't exactly loyal to the book. Oh. Yeah. Are they ever? No. So there was a lot of high stress from plagues, war, uproar, and so... You know, there was a lot of anxiety, depression just from that. And there was um, this one thing, I guess, that happened. It's called tarantism. Tyrantism? Hmm, no. Tarantism? I don't know. Uh, which is where groups of people would suddenly start to jump and dance and go into convulsions. And this sounds like a flash mob to me. It's like a classical era flash mob this reminds me of the times we'd go to church in the south and there'd be people speaking in tongues and stuff like that yeah what's up with that why do people do that uh feels good yes um there is an acting technique called the meisner technique where you just you get out of your head and you just go with whatever impulse you have and then you um 
come off very believable. Like it's a very intense acting technique. Like when I was doing it, um, it was really hard for me to shake it. But I can imagine like if you send your mind there where you're like, like whatever impulse you have, you just do it. If you're in an environment where you're allowed to do that, I guess convulsions and speaking in tongues could possibly come up. I said, I, I could only imagine going into convulsions after doing a whole lot of THC. Doing, <laughs> doing THC. Um, so the people that had tarantism were said to have been bitten by, bitten and possessed by a wolf spider now called a tarantula. Oh, it's tarantulaism. <laughs> Another thing that happened was lycanthropy. People thought they were possessed by wolves or other animals and imagined fur was growing all over their bodies. Jeez. Werewolves. Lugaroos, as <laughs> we call them in French. I wonder what, why people would do that. Maybe maybe this was a time where there were demons and stuff. Cause what's yeah, the explanation? I mean, we, I mean, we don't know, but just because they're not around now, that doesn't mean they weren't there back then. Yeah, maybe they maybe they cast them all out. But also, I think that today, um, these people are called furries, <laughs> and it's a sex thing. Like, so furries are just people with lycanthropy? Yes. <laughs> that is correct. That is the scientific explanation. <laughs> uh, so then exorcisms were revived. Witchcraft was um, really prominent, or was feared. People thought it was a thing, and it is, and it's fine. They would dunk a lady in water. This is one of the things they would do to, to get her to confess. I just imagine all these idiots standing around, and the when she finally confessed, they're all like, oh, it is true. When it, and then yes. no one was like, maybe she just wants to stop being dunked in the water. Stop being tortured. <laughs> No, they had, like, these impossible standards. It was, well, if she... We'll throw her into the river, and if she drowns, that means uh, she was innocent. And if she gets out, then obviously she's a witch. (laughs) Only a witch could get out of that. Right. This is this no-win situation. I wonder if it was, like, made like that just because they wanted to get rid of people they didn't like. I think so. I think a lot of the time... what, What? That's a lot of what the Salem witch trials were about. It was um, getting rid of people that weren't welcomed in the community and like trying to get seize their land because they wanted oh. it. Oh, yeah. I was thinking if there was, I was thinking of this because people drive like assholes. And I was like, man, I wish there was like a number you could call to report asshole drivers. <laughs> but then I thought about like the actual. Um, execution of that wouldn't be good because people would just do it constantly about people they just didn't like and it's too bad people people. are fucking assholes stop being assholes Uh, people way overreact with like some things when it's driving on the road I won't go won't go off on that tangent (laughs) (laughs) um okay so then things start to look up because uh, every once in a while, a man, because only men were allowed to tell people what to do. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. knew that up until very recently. <laughs> Women couldn't do very much or they were crazy. Back in the good old days. Yeah, when America was great. 
Um, so the Middle Ages started to draw to a close, thank God, and people began to actually receive treatment in hospitals for mental illnesses. And um, in 1400 to 1700 is kind of when this started to happen where Johann Weyer, he lived between 1515 and 1588. How old is that? 1550 and 1588? 1515 to 1588. He lived quite a while. He was over 70. Whoa! In the 1500s? That's insane. Well, a lot of people lived uh, to be pretty old. I really? think... Uh, Chaucer, the guy who wrote Canterbury Tales, he lived well into his 60s. He was alive in like the 1300s. Huh. But uh, no, it definitely definitely wasn't the norm. Yeah. Uh, So he was considered the first physician to specialize in mental illness. The founder of modern study of psychopathology. Psycho what? So basically everything that we do is based on... White dudes who did stuff in the 1500s, sometimes in the in 500 BC. Anyway, yeah, we haven't uh, come a very long way. <laughs> We're getting there. We're getting there, guys. It's a it's a slow start, but then it just the ball keeps rolling, right? Hopefully, actually, what I've discovered with this is it's kind of like this up and down thing. So so this guy comes out. So, so there was um, some moral treatment, and then we went back down in the the decline of the Ro- of Rome, and then we come back up at this guy again uh, after the Middle Ages, where we're we're being nice to people again, and this actually came pretty far because um, people with mental illness were like kept at home, and their families could take care of them, and they were even aided. By the local parish. What was this like? The time of like asylums or um, we're yeah we're like almost into that yeah we're moving oh, okay. into the time of asylums. So so there were shrines devoted to the loving and humane treatment of people with mental disorders, and one specific shrine is the Giel in Belgium. It's G H E E L. Is that Giel? G H E E L. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, that's nice. So that's one of the um, shrines devoted to the loving and humane treatment of people with mental disorders. Uh, And then we move into asylums. And originally the intention was to give good care, but because they were inpatient centers, they became so crowded and eventually um, were terribly filthy conditions and they were very cruel to people. Um, they chained patients up, and they would howl, and I just imagine living just chained to the wall at all times and screaming, you know, especially if you have something really severe where you already don't understand the world very well. Yeah, I mean, any image that you have, the for me at least, the, when the word asylum comes to mind, I don't have very pretty images but no. i mean in, in theory it seems like it's a a good idea like especially for people who don't have any like family or support or anything yeah and it was uh intended for that originally and then um 
so it became like a tourist attraction. People would come and just like listen to people in pain and tortured. And then um, 1745 to 1826, again, we have another white dude to the rescue, Philip Pinel, Pinel, P-I-N-E-L. He became the chief physician. Uh, he argued that they should be treated with sympathy and kindness rather than chains and beatings. <laughs> and- Wait, hold up. <laughs> You're saying I feel we need like- to be sympathetic to these people <laughs> and not beat them? Yeah, whose idea was it to beat them? Like, why? Hold up, we've been doing this for centuries. <laughs> I, I think we've got it worked out here. Yeah, clearly this is helping. Um, hold now- up. <laughs> Now my notes are on here. It's just, it it's baffles me. This is why, like, when comedians talk about how there need to be, like, women in the room or writers' rooms and stuff like that, it's like, had the women been able to be in the room, I feel like that whole sympathy idea would have come out a lot sooner. Maybe I'm just sexist. I don't know. I don't, well, weren't, like, um, oh, what are, not monasteries, the one for women with nuns, um, Nunnery? Nunneries. Uh, weren't they, like, involved in the... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that actually, I think, comes towards the end of this. Oh, that's so, later on. I think so. So so he's said to have unchained the patients and allowed them to move freely about the hospital grounds, replaced the dark dungeons with sunny, well-ventilated rooms, and offered support and advice. It was... <laughs> It was remarkably successful. People didn't expect it to be successful, but it was. Well, thanks for this guy. It sounds like he made a big difference. Thank God. Pinel or? Yeah, P-I-N-E-L, Philip, Felipe. I don't know what. Philippe Pinel. Yeah, probably that. Many patients who had been shut away for decades improved greatly over a short period of time and were released. Ugh. Wow. Well, at least he's saved a lot of people. Yeah. He later brought similar reforms to a mental hospital in Paris for female patients. Ooh, I should have sent this to you to say it. La Salpitrere, something. Uh, I'd have to see it. Uh, meanwhile, an English Quaker named William Tuke, he lived between 1732 to 1819, was bringing similar reforms to northern England. Uh, he founded the York Retreat, a rural estate where about 30 mental patients lived as guests in a quiet country houses and were treated with a combination of rest, talk, prayer, and manual work. Oh, praise Jesus. Well, it's kind of like a detox center or something or a rehab. Yeah. So the methods of these two guys was called moral treatment. Can you believe that they had to come up with a treatment that was about being moral? What the hell? I can't believe the part about they got rid of the dungeons. (laughs) Dungeons? Why? These are people. Um, Well, they haven't even done anything wrong other than be weird or different. I know. They were just weird. They were just being different. That wasn't okay for so long. They find someone who has mental health issues and they lock them. Now think about uh, what you've done. <laughs> yeah, what? Um, okay, so 
patients with psychological problems were increasingly perceived as potential productive human beings who deserve individual care. This is in like the late 1700s, including discussions. (laughs) Fine. Including discussions of their problems, useful activities, work, companionship, and quiet. I like how quiet was such a big deal. The person most responsible for the early spread of moral treatment in the United States was Benjamin Rush. 1745 to 1813, he was a physician at Pennsylvania Hospital, who is now considered the father of American psychiatry. Um, He limited his practice to mental illness. He developed humane approaches to treatment. uh, For example, he required that the hospital hire intelligent and sensitive attendants to work closely with patients, reading and talking to them, and taking them on regular walks. He also suggested that it would be therapeutic for doctors to give small gifts to their patients every now and again. What is that? Now I think that's uh, not allowed. Probably not. I had a therapist and I asked her if I could bring her coffee and she said, sure. And I did. I Um, had a, I just had like a social worker working with me, like helping me find a job and she was going to have a baby. So I just brought her a couple I bought a couple children's books for her, and she couldn't accept them. Ah, that was awkward. <laughs> yeah, You're like, oh. I was like, okay, I have these child books now. <laughs> Luckily, I had another friend who had a baby, so I was able to give them to him. Oh, good. Ooh, a lady came along. Her name was Dorothy Dix. Of course, her last name was Dix. Lol. It's D I X. Uh, 1802 to 1887, she made humane care a public and political concern in the United States. From 1841 to 1881, she went from state legislature to state legislature. Okay, that was weird. I'm reading from this. And to Congress, speaking of the horrors she had observed at asylums and calling for reform. Thank Jesus. Dick's campaign led to new laws and greater government funding to improve the treatment of people with mental disorders. This is like the beginning of therapy. Oh, okay. So this is like real, we're seeing real organized political mobilization and it's getting pretty serious. Yeah. Each state was made responsible for developing effective public mental hospitals or state hospitals. They were intended to offer moral treatment. Um, Oh no, it was a decline again. Ah, It's all these ups and downs. This is what's scaring me right now. I don't want to be scary. But it's like right now we're on the upslope. The the trend has been that then there becomes a a decline. So. Uh, Okay, by the 1850s, mental hospitals in Europe and America reported success by using moral approaches. By the end of the century, however, several factors led to a reversal. Uh, Is it funding or resources? Uh, it was as mental hospitals multiplied, severe money and staffing shortages developed. Uh, yeah, that's usually what it is. Yeah, recovery rates declined and overcrowding became a major problem. Another factor was the assumption behind moral treatment that all patients could be cured if treated with humanity and dignity. For some, this was indeed sufficient. However, um, more effective treatments had yet been developed. Uh, An additional factor contributing to the decline of moral treatment was the emergence of a new wave of prejudice against people with mental disorders. 
The public came to view them as strange and dangerous. Moreover, many of the patients entering public mental hospitals in the United States in the late 19th century were poor foreign immigrants whom the public had little interest in helping. Hmm. Oh, so it was a lack of compassion, lack of resources. Yeah, I mean, if you overwork people, fuck yeah, they're going to lose their compassion. That happened when what, I worked at a hospital. What time period was this? This was like the late 19th century. Okay, yeah, this is like the beginning of, um, this is like around the time of the Industrial Revolution, too. So this is, mm. uh, like in the United States, you get a lot more people moving into the cities. Yeah. And yeah, the really grueling work conditions, like 12-hour days and longer. Oh. So I bet. I'd be willing to bet that that would definitely lead to an increase in mental health, uh, <sighs> mental health problems. Good observation. Um, maybe, maybe this is the decline of mental health right now during coronavirus. Let's hope. Let's hope this is all there is in this newfound, in, in the tragic, um, indefinite decline. Is that, what's the right word for that? certain that it's it's definitely going to happen i just always remember what um my elementary school teacher used to say is it's all downhill from here (laughs) she did not no uh okay by the early years of the 20th century the moral treatment of movement had ground to a halt In both the United States and Europe, public mental hospitals were providing only custodial care and ineffective medical treatments and were becoming more overcrowded every year. Early 20th century, the somatic, genic, and psychogenic perspectives. They they started to kind of like incorporate biological treatments and approaches. Like medicine or... Yeah. I want to get to like the the hopeful part where, where we live now. In the 1950s is when psychotropic medications started to come into play. Woo-woo! Yeah, antidepressant drugs lifted the mood of de- depressed people, anti-anxiety drugs reduced, atten- reduced tension and worry, and people that had spent years in mental hospitals began to show signs of improvement. Right. You know, just within re- a few recent decades or even a few recent years, like we've seen a lot more... Uh, breakthroughs with medication for treating uh, mental illnesses. Like my my girlfriend, she's um, schizophrenic, mm-hmm. and she's one of the very small percentage of people who actually get better with treatment or like with with the medication. Oh yeah, I thought this was interesting. It's about happiness, and this is cited by the Economist. In 2010, mm-hmm. and in our very first episode of this podcast, we talk about introverts and extroverts, and we basically determine that introverts are probably happier people. <laughs> but according to this, who tends to be happier? Extroverts, apparently. Also, peaceful people as opposed to angry people. Oh, regular church attenders as opposed to non-church attenders. That uh, I would I would probably make the caveat that it would only be happier if you were doing like the church activities because if you're just going to the boring service and falling asleep. Uh, yeah, if like you're not the, engaging, 
It like doing the church picnics and everything. Like, yeah. I remember when I would do things like that and that would, it would, it, it was fun or it yeah. was pleasant. But just sitting there during the service, it's, uh, unless you get like a Christian rock band. Oh, I love music and church. Whew. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll just, I'll, I'll end on this because, um, I mean, we can come back to this if, if I find that I want to talk more about treatment these days, because I do. I want to go more into into that, but I mean, we've talked about the history of it, you know? So, so now we are where we're at. I'll get a better idea of what that is and put it in a different episode, um, but I'll, I'll leave on this. Uh, it's this little chart and it is cited so there you know there's been some studies behind it and it's what do happy people do and i'll just read what all of these say they allow themselves to lose track of time oh yeah that would i wish i could permit myself that luxury that's so cool i never even thought of that they experience spirituality and mindfulness mindfulness oh totally i i have to rediscover that i forget how important that is to my happiness Mm. they exercise which is so hard to do sometimes they get enough sleep i'm not surprised Ooh, they try to listen it it feels much better to listen to other people i think I've been recording my mood on that app called Dailyo, and one of the things, like, you select, what's your, how are you feeling? And you're like, good. And then it's like, why? And and you select all these different things. And one of the things is listening. And I find that on days that I try to listen more, I have a better mood. It's really, I never even thought of that. They devote time to charity and giving. Oh, yeah, definitely wish I could do that more. I mean, it makes sense, but I've never found that to make me happier. It kind of bums me out, if anything else. <laughs> I mean, I've I've volunteered down at soup kitchens, and uh, I volunteered at the library and stuff like that, but I mostly felt like I was just in the way more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, that's, I mean, as a female, that just can be kind of, like, seemingly dangerous to put yourself in those situations and i'm already scared of everything so they bounce back from failures so resilience that's that's like not as easy uh to do as it is to say the other ones i feel like are more like you can integrate them but this one is like bounce back from failures you idiot (laughs) just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and (laughs) just do it i mean it's true if you are able to rebound from a failure then you're probably You'll happier. Be, you're probably happier, but are you going to? That's, that's that's the question. That's the question. Uh, the last one is that they engage in social relationships and activities. Yeah. Social people are happier people. So I'll end on that. And that was the history of the history of psychological treatment. Go to our website, practicemakespodcast.com. Send us some surveys or emails or voicemails uh suggest something a topic for the show and yes please reach out and communicate with us and we hope you all have a good week and we thank you for your time as always
Also, rate and subscribe and whatever on Apple Podcasts. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Bye.